0: Get your advanced PhD in WoW from Floor and Decor. If you're a pro, you're already an expert in tile, wood, and stone. And with Floor and Decor's job site delivery, their free design services, and pro rewards that actually reward you, your business is set to grow from one client to the next. Floor and Decor isn't just a couple of aisles, it's an entire store designed to help your business boom. It's Floor and Decor. Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When it comes to investing, your brain can be your best friend or your worst enemy. My guest today explains how and what you can do to ensure your brain is a staunch ally in your quest for financial security. His name is Daniel Crosby. He's a psychologist, behavioral finance expert, and the author of the book, The Behavioral Investor. We began a conversation discussing the surprising ways sociology and physiology influence our financial decisions. We then delve into the psychological factors that cause us to make bad investing choices, including ego, conservatism, attention, and emotion. Daniel then walks us through ways you can mitigate those factors in your financial choices, and we enter a discussion outlining what an investing framework looks like based on the principles of behavioral science. While the principles discussed in this show relate to making sound choices in the area of financial investing, they're actually pretty relevant to making good decisions of every kind. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash behavioral investor. And Daniel joins me now via clearcast.io. Daniel Crosby, welcome back to the show. Great to be back. So we had you on a couple years ago to talk about your book, The Laws of Wealth. You got a new book out, The Behavioral Investor. It looks really cool. It's got this awesome inkblot bowl,
1: which looks pretty badass. How is this book a continuation of The Laws of Wealth? So this is the graduate level version of, uh, I think, The Laws of Wealth. The Laws of Wealth was my 10 rules for, for getting your finances right. And it was sort of a paint by number. This book is admittedly a little more complex and, you know, I write in the first introduction there that I, my aim with this book was to be the most comprehensive look at the psychology of financial decision making that had ever been written. And so uh, that was sort of my audacious goal from the outset. So that's what I tried to do here is look at money and decision making from every possible angle. Well, so you specialize
0: in behavioral investing, and this is what this book's about. For those who aren't familiar with that, what is behavioral investing? When did it become a thing, and
1: what are the fields it brings together to to do what it does? So you're you're right. It is an absolute mutt of a of a field of a discipline. It sort of sits at the intersection of finance and behavioral science and sociology and psychology and decision theory and game theory. And so one of the things that I love about behavioral finance, which is sort of the the name from for my field, the proper name for my field, is that it does incorporate all of these things and uh it's Immensely challenging because there are so many fields and subdisciplines involved. So you never feel like you quite get your hands around all of it. Uh, but it, to me, it's a really gratifying challenge. So it, it's risen to prominence in recent years because in the late 20th and early 21st century, there have been a number of Nobel prizes given out in behavioral finance and behavioral economics. So people like Daniel Kahneman and Richard Thaler and Robert Schiller have all won Nobel Prizes for their work. But the, the ideas that, that undergird a lot of what I'm writing about today go back to even biblical times. You know, there's references in Ecclesiastes to, you know, humility and diversification. It says in Ecclesiastes 11.2, invest in seven ventures. You do not know what disasters may come upon the land. And, you know, so I'm writing about some of these things through a scientific lens. But Shakespeare wrote about these things. They're written about in the Bible. Adam Smith wrote about animal spirits in the theory of moral sentiments in the 1700s. Keynes wrote about booms and busts in in the early 1900s. So these ideas have been around for a very long time, but we're just now through the lens of of science and with scientific rigor, starting to to call them by their proper names and and codify them and classify them the way that, that a scientist would. Well, one thing I noticed that behavioral investing does, and you spend the first part of your book discussing this, is
0: looking at the ways our bodies, our brains, our psychology, our relationships all these things how they cause us to make bad or good investment decisions. So let's talk about like sociology because that's something you wouldn't think of going to first cuz you people think oh it's a decision it's personal it's just me. Psychology we were to start, but you talk about how sociology has a big influence on us as an investor.
1: Yeah, so I think the person that's written about this most beautifully is you've all know a Harari who wrote Sapiens and a couple of other wonderful books, but In there, Harari makes the point that the thing that differentiates us from the rest of the animal kingdom is not communication because, you know, dolphins and chimps do that. It's not opposable thumbs. It's not, you know, tools because crows use tools. The thing that differentiates us from the rest of the animal kingdom is we are able to believe in what he calls functional fictions. So these are things that are not strictly rationally true, but that serve a a species-wide purpose. And so to to make that a little more concrete, he says that money and economies are sort of foremost among these things. So, you know, everyone that's listening to this show spends most of their day toiling away for these pieces of little green, green paper. Or, you know, numbers in their bank account that have no intrinsic worth aside from the worth that we have ascribed them as a society. And so he says this is where we differ from the rest of the animal kingdom is that we, you know, we can create states and constitutions and economies and things that aren't literally true, that don't have a basis and objective fact, but still have collective utility and collective truth by virtue of our of our group agreement upon these rules and so we learn that in a very real sense from the time we're born we believe in stuff that's not true because it's expedient and so that's done great things for us as a species But it means that we tend to reason not in rational terms, but in group terms. And when you apply that sort of herding behavior, that crowd mentality to something like trying to choose a good stock or trying to time the market or, you know, decide how to invest, that same tendency that serves us very well when we're setting up a, a nation or a church serves us very poorly as investors. My favorite bit of research on this in the book talks about this Ash experiment. Which is an experiment that was done, you know, 50 years ago plus where they had people look at three different lengths of lines and they had, you know, a group of lines on the left and a group of lines on the right and say effectively, you know, which, which line on which, uh, excuse me, one line on the left and then a group of lines on the right and say which line on the right looks the most like the line on the left. Well, what they would do is they would put people in groups so that uh, confederates of the experiment, six or seven people would go before and give the wrong answer. And so by the time they get to the last person, 76% of the time, the, the last person who was not in on the joke, not in on the experiment, would also give the wrong answer. Now, we used to think that this was just a simple matter of peer pressure, but brain science now we're able to observe what happens in an experiment like this uh, when we monitor brain activity with an fMRI. We find that this person's the parts of their brain that are lighting up during this experiment are those that are associated with sensation and perception. So the groups thinking that the wrong line was, was the match actually changes the way that last person physically sees it. They're not just getting pressured into doing something different. They're actually seeing it differently than it is because the other people in the group disagree. And so we have to understand this as investors, that other people's opinions of a market, of a stock, actually can warp our perceptions in real ways. No, I thought
0: that's powerful. I've experienced that. I think if you're like if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, you probably experienced this with baseball cards. It's a perfect <laughs> example. Like I was, I was, I was convinced when I was 12 that I was gonna I would like pay for college in my retirement with my baseball card collection. And now it's in my attic and it's worth nothing.
1: Yeah. So the baseball card bubble has been well documented. There was also a really profound bubble, I think a few years later in Beanie Babies. And there was a a book written on the Beanie Baby bubble that is like an absolute thrilling must read. And the guy that was in charge of, you know, the guy that invented Beanie Babies was like this salacious character and, you know, (laughs) just doing all kinds of shady stuff. But, you know, we had the Beckett monthly, right? You remember Beckett, you would get your, your monthly thing and you would check. It's the equivalent of a Bloomberg terminal for, you know, for little kids in the 80s where we would sit there and every month it only went up. Right. Your you know, your Frank Thomas card or your Ken Griffey rookie card or your Jose Canseco card only ever went up. And you had these positive feedback loops with the Beckett magazines. Uh and then we had a glut of supply. You know, it used to be just tops, but then you had Fleer and Donruss and Upper Deck and all these late entrants when this started to take off. So yeah, the the things that were present there. You had this collectivist mentality. Every person our age thought that they were going to go to college based on their Ken Griffey rookie card. But we're comparing that, you know, to a time when the Hannes Wagner card came in tobacco packs and, you know, they had to shut them down because people got upset that they were selling cigarettes to kids basically with these cards inside. So they're extremely rare. And you contrast that with a time when you've got you know a new baseball card startup popping up every every other year so these feedback loops like like i just talked about precipitated this bubble and you see that that collectivist mentality was a lot of what propped it up until until we no longer agreed that they were worth what we thought they were worth and you're seeing something similar with like
0: cryptocurrency right like there's a 2 years ago i guess that huge spike in bitcoin but now there's all these other cryptocurrencies and we're the 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 market's still trying to like the group's still trying to decide like what's this thing worth and no one really knows yet.
1: Well, you know, cryptocurrency is a great example, and everyone loves to dump on cryptocurrency. But the thing is, our fiat currency, you know, our money is is really no different than than cryptocurrency. Except perhaps at this point in that it's backed up by big guns and big governments, but you know cryptocurrency is a perfect example of this. You know it was to whatever Thanksgiving last it was worth twenty thousand dollars a coin because that's what people thought it was worth, and today it's worth whatever three three or four thousand because some of that trust has been eroded, and people no longer have this sort of collectivist consensus around this. And so we need to understand that you know uh, you don't find stock prices, you don't dig up stock prices from the earth, and they don't have an objective reality. They're worth what we all think they're worth, and understanding that human tendency is a powerful first step towards being a good investor.
0: So another part of our self that you wouldn't think in would influence investment decisions or financial decisions is our physiology, right? Like our body can
1: actually influence our decisions. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so I, th- I think this one is perhaps the, the most ignored, and it's a little bit candidly discomforting to learn about how central your body is to the way that you think about the world, uh, because each of us has this subjective sense of, of being in control. Like, you know, being in control, we're making good decisions based on the available information, and these decisions are, are more or less objective. But in my research, I found a lot that sort of speaks against this strongest form of free will and talks a lot about how our bodies have a huge impact. So, you know, a couple of, couple of examples are, there's been research on, on the power of music. And so when, when liquor stores play French music, the consumption of champagne goes up 75%. When they play German music, the consumption of German beer goes up 50%. When they play music, classical music on the tube... Violent crime drops dramatically. So there's all these things that like what's going on in your body and your surroundings has a ton to do with the way that you make decisions. And I cite a famous study in the book that talked about Israeli judges, and it found that the best predictor of the the harshness or the leniency of an Israeli judge's uh, ruling was how recently they had eaten. So, you know, the, the further they were away from a snack or a mealtime, the more punitive they became. And so we're talking about the best educated, the upper crust, the intelligentsia of one of the most technologically advanced great civilizations the world has ever known. And the smartest 2% of Israelis are making decisions after, you know, eight years of college based on how recently they've eaten lunch. Uh, but I promise you that if you ask someone who's coming out of a liquor store, you know, why did you buy that beer? Or you ask an Israeli judge, why did you throw the book at this prisoner? Neither one of them is going to say because of these subtle bodily cues. And yet that's what the research tells us. And so it's a, it's a little unnerving to learn how, how sort of fickle we are and how fallible and, and how quickly we can get moved away from this sort of homeostatic set point where we make the best decisions. So you could like be hungry
0: and decide to sell all your stock and go all
1: in on something else just because you're hungry. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's a possibility. That, that, that's, ab- that's absolutely plausible. And I mean, I think, you know there's, you know, substitute hunger for for myriad other emotions, you know, upset upset with your spouse, you know, didn't sleep well the night before. You know, two nights of missed sleep is the equivalent of a a hit of acid. So, I mean, all of these things impact our decision-making in really, really powerful ways. And so, let's say you got a young, you know, a young kid in the house. I got, you know, I have a young son who wakes me up just about every night. And he's really messing with my investment decision-making, right? You, all, these, you know, all these sort of very quotidian everyday factors, like how recently you've eaten, you know, how your kids are sleeping, all of this could, could wreak havoc on the way you manage money. Well, and this is the art of manliness.
0: Testosterone, I think they've done studies on that. Testosterone has a big influence on how stockbrokers make investment decisions. Like If they have higher levels of testosterone, they take, they
1: take more risks. That's what testosterone does. Yeah, there's a there's a great book by John Coates. It's called The Hour Between Dog and Wolf. That's all around his studies of testosterone on on traders on the floor of stock exchanges back when back when we did that. You know, had open outcry markets. But what they found was that testosterone increased in in winning traders. So like you're on a hot streak, you're you're trading, you know, you're trading your face off, you're doing great, you're, you know, compounding your money, you're doing great. Testosterone increases and increases and increases until we take dumber and dumber risks like for a while it's helpful you know this increased level of testosterone is actually helpful it makes you uh, you know your senses more acute it makes you sharper and more confident uh, but then at some point it spills over into overconfidence and he he talked about observing this in the animal kingdom as well you know rams and different animals who would would you know fight for a mate they would win a couple of matches in a row they'd win a couple of you know these head to heads in a row, and then they'd start taking stupid risks and so yeah it's it's a real consideration and you know at the risk of being booed off the the art of manliness stage here women on on average are much better investors than men part of it's the way that they're socialized but part of it's genetic i mean part of it's biological physiological and maybe like it's why older men do better too like like a Warren
0: Buffett type like he's probably not, doesn't have the testosterone levels of a
1: 25 year old Warren Buffett well the worst the worst traders are young unmarried men uh, the best traders are married older married women and then older married men are just behind them and i think that that has a lot to do with it All right. So
0: our sociology can jack us up. The people we associate with, the group can mess us up. Our physiology can influence our decisions. Sometimes good, like the testosterone can be good, but at a certain point, it's diminishing returns and actually negative returns. Let's talk about the psychology. And you talk about there's four factors in our psychology that can cause us to make bad investing decisions. There's ego, and there's conservatism, attention, and emotion. Let's start with ego. So first off, like, what do you mean by ego? Because people have different ways of describing that. And then how does our ego cause us to make bad de-
1: investment decisions? Yeah. So ego in this case is not like ego in the Freudian sense. This would be ego in, in the sense of overconfidence. So overconfidence, again, uh, research suggests men are, men are more prone to overconfidence than, than women, especially with respect to money. But overconfidence takes a couple of forms, cup three to be exact. So overconfidence, uh, we tend to think we're luckier than other people. We tend to think we're smarter than other people, and we tend to think that we can forecast the future better better than we actually can. And so if you think about each of these, you know, the luckier thing, people tend to say, you know, if you ask someone, you know, what are the odds of you getting divorced? They'll say, oh, you know, never, never happened. What are the odds of you winning the lottery? Like, oh, well, maybe. And we see this across contexts that when we ask people about bad things, they dramatically underestimate the risk of bad things happening to them and dramatically overstate the problem probability of really positive things happening to them. So this systematic sort of misapprehension of the world leads us to take outsized risk, leads us to, you know, do all sorts of dumb things because we think it can't happen to us. That, you know, the, the second piece there is just thinking we're, we're better than other people. We're smarter than other people. There's great research The the last the last paragraph of this research said that the average man thinks that he's two sit-ups away from dating a supermodel because they found that 90 plus percent of men think they're friendlier than average, smarter than average and more athletic than average. And so we, you know, we all think we're, we're better uh, than we really are. Uh, And the thing about this and a a theme throughout the book is that this serves us very well uh, in many respects this this overconfidence i mean it helps us back bounce back from tough times it helps us bounce back from rejection it gets us out of bed in the morning you know it leads us to approach the girl at the bar that we probably have no business talking to and we end up marrying like i mean there's a lot of good stuff that comes from from overconfidence and a sort of a rosy look at the world But you can't bring it to the world of investing. And that's just a theme you see again and again in the book is, look, this stuff evolutionarily exists for a reason, but Wall Street is a different animal and you have to leave this overconfidence to the side. I mean, so
0: how does that manifest itself that you've seen where that there's overconfidence amongst investor,
1: investors? Well, you know, one is day trading, you know, people just making, you know, thinking they can go it alone, thinking they can go it without any real education or any assistance from a professional over trading accounts. I see a lot of people holding two large positions in a single stock. All of this is ego, right? Because they think, well, I know something. I have insider information. It's not going to happen to me. Now, I talked to a gentleman at a conference who had $2 million. He came up to me and was like, look, I have $2 million. Half of it's in a diversified portfolio. Half of it's in this single stock. What do you think about the prospects for this single stock? And I was actually incredibly bullish on the stock at the time, and it, it's done very well since. But I told him, I'm like, you, you know, you have to sell this. You have to diversify away from this position. Because you can be right and still be a moron. And, you know, good, good investing, good behavioral investing is about playing the probabilities. It's like, it's like playing cards. You tilt probability in your favor at every turn and you never make an outsized bet that can ruin you. So even if that, you know, I have no idea what he did with that million dollar holding in a single stock. But even though it's gone up since then, I hope he sold it because that was the right thing to do. I mean, that's how you win as a long-term investor, by, by tilting the odds in your favor, not by getting lucky.
0: We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. Well, I thought another key takeaway for me on this section about ego is that particularly in regards to the stock market is that we actually become more egocentric and by egocentric, I mean like we, we, we have overconfidence when there's more complexity in our environment. And like the stock market, it's like one of the most complex things out there because it's just, it's all based on groups of people trying to decide
1: the value of this fictitious thing out there. Yeah. Well, So you, you make a great point. And one of the, uh, you know, there's so many paradoxes about human nature as they butt up against the stock market. But one of them is that the more complex and dynamic a system is, the more simple your solution needs to be. So this is, you know, profoundly counterintuitive. We think, you know, that the more complicated a system is, the more dynamic it is, we need complex dynamic rules to beat it. And the opposite is true when I talk about this in the book. So yes, the, the stock market is enormously complicated. It has effectively an infinite amount of inputs. And because that is the case, you will never, ever figure out, you know, the rules. There will never be a perfect formula. And accordingly, the people that tend to do well in the market tend to follow a handful of simple rules. You know, they don't try and time it. They, they automate their decisions and they kind of let it run. And it's not a sexy thing. It kind of flies in the face of where we want to be. But because the market is so complicated, for that very reason, your solution necessarily needs to be simple.
0: And I imagine the, the folks who come up with complex solutions, because the solution is so complex and they, they feel like they thought this through a lot, they're, they're going to be more
1: certain of their solution, even though it's probably the wrong solution. Well, there's there's great research on that. They talk about um, betting, you know, betting in college sports and and how folks do if they're given, you know, let's say we're I'm, an Ala- I'm from Alabama, so let's say Auburn and Alabama are going to play, and you know, I give you four variables, you know, I give you the average weight of the offensive line and you know a couple other variables, right? And then they ask people to bet on the outcome of the game. So they do this with four variables, eight variables, ten variables, twenty five variables. So people's ability to predict the outcome of a game is flat across all those variables. But their confidence increases with the complexity, increases with the number of variables. So people with 4 pieces of information are no better at guessing who's going to win that football game than people with 25 pieces of information, but they're much more confident in their ability to predict it and accordingly take more leveraged bets, take bigger bets, take stupider bets. And, you know, the same thing is true in the stock market. You see some of the brightest people around have figured out complicated systems to try and and master the market. But what has invariably happened to them is that they've blown up. You know, they've they've blown up. They'll do well for a time and then they blow up. Look up long-term capital management or any number of others and so the complexity becomes the undoing in the long term. And the complexity is also, just as you said, the very thing that leads them to take stupid bets in the first place. You know, an- another thing that I, that I like to tell people to do to try and mitigate this overconfidence is to define the problem as precisely as possible. Because when, when the question is vague, you know, when you ask people, um, you know, are you, are you smarter than average? Almost everyone says yes. Because smart is kind of this vague thing. You know, some people think it looks like street smarts. Some people think, you know, it looks like having an advanced degree. There's not much agreement on what smart is. And so most people go, yeah, I'm, I'm smarter than average. But if I ask you, you know, are you a better, are you a better oil painter than, than most people, you know, you go, oh, well, no. You know I'm definitely not a you know a better oil painter than most people and so the the more precisely you can define a problem the more likely you are able to be to sort of match your own skills uh, up against your ability to complete that problem
0: well besides that is there anything else that you can do to mitigate the downsides of ego when, it, when you're investing so uh,
1: in investing I mean the, the easiest way to manage ego is to just uh, diversify you know to diversify across a number of different asset classes Classes And then, you know, within each of those asset classes too. make sure your holdings are diversified within and across asset classes, uh, because diversification, we've all, you know, we've all heard about it as, you know, don't keep your eggs in one basket. And that that's right. That that is what it is. But psychologically, you're basically saying, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, diversification is effectively saying, shrugging your shoulders, right? Saying, I have no idea what's going to happen. I have no idea if stocks or bonds or real estate or gold or you know what other uh, ever other thing is going to be the next big winner, so I'm just going to own them all and so that is one of the most humble things you can do, and it's not sexy but it but it works and then you know the last thing I would say is to become a teacher. I follow Richard Feynman's admonition here, the great physicist, and he used to ask people this sort of cheeky question. He would ask people, you know do you know how a toilet works?' And, you know, everyone's like, yeah, I mean, I I know how a toilet works. Like I use a toilet a couple of times a day. So yeah. And then you go, okay, well, great. Teach me how a toilet works. And then people would stutter and stammer and, you know, realize they had no idea how a toilet works. And so, you know, for me, the process of writing books is one of the ways that I keep myself in check because when I try to tackle these big problems and write, write these comprehensive books, I end up, you know, finding the holes in my logic, the gaps in my understanding and so becoming an educator on, on these things. Trying to teach, you know, a friend or a spouse about finance is one way that you're going to realize you don't know as much as you perhaps thought you did. Or
0: if it's really hard to explain your investment strategy to your 13-year-old daughter <laughs> or son. Yeah, exactly. That might mean you you need to do something different. Exactly. So the other psychological factor that can get in the way of us making good decisions is conservatism.
1: Talk about that a bit. So conservatism is the tendency for us to confuse what we're familiar with with what is safe or desirable. So you see this in a couple of ways. You know, The first way is that people tend to dramatically overinvest in their company stock. A second way that we see this is, you know, by geography. So, you know, people in the Northeast, Northeastern U.S. tend to be very overweight financial sectors and people in the Midwest tend to be overweight agriculture stocks, say. And and so we also see this on on a national level. You know, I spent three months in Canada last summer. I lived in Western Canada last summer and it was absolutely gorgeous. Can't wait to go back. But, you know, Canada was interesting because they're about 4% of global GDP comes from Canada. And yet the average Canadian had about 65% of their wealth in Canadian stocks. And so the reason they did this is because they knew them and they thought by virtue of them knowing, knowing about these companies that they were safer or better. But a good rule of thumb is to own stock in relative to proportion to its you know share of the equity pie worldwide so the us is just over half so you know as a good rule of thumb about half of your stocks should should be in the us and the, the other half should be international so yeah we we see this all over the place though where it's like uh, because i know it because i'm familiar with it therefore i'll invest in it and it's actually quite dangerous and you know we saw during the greek debt crisis you know greek is some teeny tiny percentage of the world economy and yet greek investors had a majority of their wealth in, in greek stocks and it ended very poorly for them so something we have to be aware of and i imagine too this can get in the way it's like it's that uh,
0: loss aversion right so like as soon as we own something like it's ours and like we don't want to lose it even though it's like it would make sense just to get rid of it so like you buy a stock and it's
1: doing terrible you don't want to dump it because like that's the devil you know Yep, absolutely. There is a, there's a real devil, you know, factor. So, you know, you're, you're talking about loss aversion and also endowment effect, which is this, this idea that by virtue of owning something, it becomes more valuable. You know, this is why people have trouble selling their houses or, you know, selling their junk at a garage sale. Cause we think just because it's ours, you know, it's, it's worth more than, than the market will bear. That's a very, very common tendency. And the reason this is so dangerous is because it basically, you're you're stacking risk. So, you know, I live, I live here in Atlanta. And so let's say I live in Atlanta and I work for Coca Cola and I, you know, I invest in Coke stock, you know, heavily through my personal investing. And then I invest in AFLAC and UPS and other, you know, Cox Communications and other local companies because I know them and I have friends there. So they feel like known entities to me. Well, if the Atlanta economy hurts, if, if something happens to Coke and people stop drinking you know, as m- many soft drinks, my, my house value goes down, my stocks go down, I may lose my job and my local economy is impacted. So you're like quadruple loaded when you do this, you, when you fall prey to this conservatism bias.
0: And we can become more conservative based on our environment. So I think they've done, st- you highlighted studies when like, the stock market is going down like people like like stop like stop investing in the market they might even sell and and they just go put everything into cash or bonds or gold or whatever and it's just because the group decided. Well, this not as the
1: stock is not as worth as much as we thought it was. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because I'm I'm one of my big projects at work right now is developing this tech simulation of the stock market, basically a stock market game that that monitors people's behavior uh, and, and tries to make inferences about how to keep them from from making bad decisions. And what you see again and again is people do the exact opposite of what they should do. You know, when the stock market has run up you know for years at a time they go okay now let's get you know now let's take some risk well at that very moment uh, it's riskier than it's ever been and then when the market crashes they go okay let's take some risk off the table so you know howard marks this billionaire famed investor calls this the perversity of risk which is that risk is is most felt when it is least present and it's least felt when it's most present so it's a tricky paradox again but just about the moment you're starting to feel safe, you should start to worry, uh, and just when you're at your period of, of maximum worry, you should start to to take some risk. But the thing is, though, is
0: like that's hard to figure out, right? Like you don't know. It's like, okay, is it gonna this this rally we're having? Like we had like that big bull market going on for you know, and it sort of started going down in July. You're like, oh, should I should I sell now? Like, is this the point? I mean, the, if- yeah, it
1: it absolutely is. And you know, the thing is, it will never. It will never really feel safe. I mean, when you look back over, you know, a hundred years of of the S and P or the Dow, there's always been a reason not to invest. I mean, you look at, well, you know, Warren Buffett's lifetime where he's compounded his wealth so extravagantly. You know, there have been numerous world wars. There've been flu outbreaks. There've been pandemics. I mean, there's just been political scandals. I mean, there's always going to be a reason to worry, and we always think that our time is sort of uniquely bad. And, you know, this is cutting to the chase. This is where I think that one of the biggest tools in a behavioral investor's arsenal is automation. You know, just being able to take the decision making process off the table, having some solid rules about investing consistently, escalating those investments as your, as your income grows. And frankly, just worrying about more important stuff because, you know, life is, is much more than the things we're talking about today. And the sooner you can automate these things, you know, the happier you're going to be, and the richer you're going to be.
0: All right, so the the the, the counter out conservatism, just put your investment on autopilot.
1: Yeah, yeah, put it put it on autopilot. You know, another thing you can do is to take away the fear of loss. You know, I talk I talk in the book about a Hyundai Hyundai the car maker program during the Great Recession. You know, automakers were getting destroyed, and Hyundai says, you know, what can we do to sell some cars in this awful environment? they they started a program that said you know buy a Hyundai and if you lose your job we'll buy it back at full price you know we're going to buy it back at full price and they had an 8% increase that year in a horrible market you know everyone else was getting killed and they were up 8% that year in terms of their sales because you took the worst case scenario off the table so this is you know this is something that me and my wife do once we passed you know, sort of our first significant milestone, our first significant financial milestone, we said, look, we don't want to go back from this place. You know, so we have a bucket of money and a safety bucket. And it's, you know, candidly not getting market returns is getting two and a half, 3% uh, and, and has been for a couple of years, but it helps us sleep well at night and it takes away the fear of loss. So that we can be more aggressive uh, with, with some of our other assets. So that's an, another big one. And then finally, procrastinating. We're much less likely to, to rely on the status quo or to do what's always been done. If we sleep on it, we're about 30% less likely to just take the default option. If we just take a day, think it over. So never get pressured by a financial salesperson. Uh, never make a big decision uh, about your money in a hurry always take that day that 24 or 36 hours to sleep on it think on it and you're going to be much less likely to to fall prey to this yeah the bucket strategy
0: sounds like Nassim Taleb's barbell strategy yeah right where you have one you have one like a bit like 10% like in just CDs, bonds, like the safest thing you could possibly have. And, or no, it's like most of it's in CDs and bonds. And then you use 10% to take, and he's like a hedge fund guy. So he's like taking like big time risk. And so the downside, like it mitigates the downside, but the upside is really great if it works out.
1: Yeah. The, yeah. There's, there's really something to it. I use, I use sort of three buckets. I have like safety, you know, a safety bucket, a, you know, a market bucket, and then a sort of shoot the lights out, drive a Bentley one day bucket. (laughs) So, you know, these are, these are sort of my three, but that safety bucket is such peace of mind. And I mean, it's not, again, mathematically, it's not optimal. You know, I'm getting suboptimal returns on that. But one of the things you learn when you study behavioral investing is the best portfolio is the one that you can stick with.
0: So let's talk about attention. The stuff we pay attention to in the world can influence our decisions.
1: How, how so? Yeah. So attention is all about this human tendency to confuse what's scary and lurid and vivid and newsworthy with what is likely. You know, so the silliest example that I cite in the book was that many, many times more people died last year of taking selfies uh, than died in, in shark attacks. And yet, you know, we're very scared of sharks and we're, you know, not not all that scared of taking selfies. And it's because we just don't think about the world in probabilistic terms. You know, the things that we hear about on the nightly news are, are what scares us. You know, odds are that that you and I are going to die of, you know, cancer or a heart attack or something. And yet here we are, you know, worried about terrorism and crashing in a Boeing 737 and, you know, all kinds of things that are statistically unlikely. And yet, you know, I'm going to go eat a hamburger tonight and, you know, bring, <laughs> bring bring myself closer to something that's very likely like a heart attack. And so part of becoming a, a behavioral investor is learning to think in terms of base rates, to think in terms and uh, assess probability on the terms in which it actually happens and not just on the terms in which you can recall it. But it sounds like the way the attention can infect our investing is like you just remember the bad things that
0: happen. Like if you're a millennial, you just remember the Great Recession. You're like, well, that sucked. I'm not going to invest in stock anymore. If you're a greatest generation guy, you remember the Great Depression. It's like, well, I'm going to put all my money under the mattress. But you ignore all the other times where things were great in the stock market.
1: Yeah. So that is a, that is a, an absolutely fantastic example. So, you know, you look at someone like me, so I got out of grad school in 2000, in 2008. So, you know, I get my first, you know, big boy job in 2008 and I start saving and immediately it's just crushed, right? You know, immediately, whatever meager sum I had put aside was halved because, because of the great recession and so, you know, there's something in psychology called a primacy or, and a recency effect where we have a better memory for, for events that happen to us early in a sequence and late in a sequence. And so we tend to be overly influenced by things that happen early in our investing lives and things that have happened recently. And so, yeah, someone like, uh, you know, you think about Q4 of last year, we had such a choppy market in November and December. So someone my age in Q4 of last year is going, well... Look, I got into the market. I got crushed. Here we are again. It's getting crushed. All this stupid market does is go down, you know, ignoring the fact that it's up 400. <laughs> you know, in, in that in that intermediate period. So that's the tension at work: is these big, high-profile events sticking in our minds and, and looming larger than life than the actual numbers and the actual reality. So, how do you overcome that? So you know there 's this idea of of base rates, right, which is just planning around probabilities so if you look at some of the probabilities in the market, the market in the last thirty five years has dropped fourteen percent a year on average, okay so on average, there has been a drawdown sometime in the year uh, from a from a from a peak to a trough of fourteen percent, and yet every time we have an eight or nine percent drop in the market. CNBC has a markets and turmoil special we're freaking out like we've never seen this before and it happens as regularly as you know Christmas and your birthday I mean it, it happens all the time it's because people have forgotten about base rates so I think one of the things to do is become uh, you know become a bit of a market historian to, to know what average looks like you know I think about because I think about this with marriage too you know if you ask someone on their wedding day, and you, you really shouldn't do this, but if you, if you ask someone on their wedding day, you know, what's the likelihood of you getting divorced? If they're honest with you, they should say, well, you know, 50-50. <laughs> and yet we, we don't think in those terms. And because we don't think in those terms, we don't prepare adequately and we don't maybe treat marriage with the, with the care and the you know the the care that it deserves and the same is true of markets if we knew the odds better we'd know better uh, we'd better know how to react so becoming a market historian and attending to those base rates is extremely important so maybe like you tape up tape
0: up like a chart of the base rates like next to your computer so if you make a decision like you look at that first
1: yeah well you know i think there's just a couple of things to know like i mean the market's the market tends to be up the market tends to be up about 2 days for every 1 day that it's down. So, you know, if you have a down day or even a down year, it's not that rare. I mean, it happens about a third of the time. That's no excuse for you to get off course. You know, the average uh, bear market's about a year and a half to 2 years long and it has about a 37% uh, loss of, you know, destruction of capital. But I promise you that the next time that the the market drops 30%, people are going to think that it's going to zero. Right. So they, we don't understand the base rates. We don't understand the history. We don't understand what normal is. And because we don't understand what normal is, everything seems scary to us. So I, I love your idea of just having a note card with a couple of those basics and keeping it, keeping it right there. Well, another thing
0: that you just mentioned something that I thought would be useful too, is like, don't check your portfolio every day. Because you're going to see this go, it's going to go up and it's going to go down, it's going to go down more and it's going to go up like
1: maybe once a month, maybe like once a quarter. Yeah. So, so what's interesting is the, the longer you can go between checking it, the more likely you are to be up, right? I mean, because if you look at, you know, if you look at any given day, the market's up about 60% of the time and down 40% of the time you look at any given year, it's about sixty six thirty three. You look at any 10-year period, I think there has only been one rolling 10-year period in in U.S. history where the market was down. So, you know, the the longer you can go between looking, the better off you'll be. And one of the things that is actually very much to the detriment of everyday investors is the ease with which we can check our accounts now. You know, back even t- 20 years ago, you had to wait on a quarterly statement Ah, uh, now you can check your you know you can check your account fifteen times a day. And I know many people do. And the tricky thing is, one of the findings of behavioral finance, uh, this is what Daniel Kahneman won his Nobel Prize for, is that a loss hurts two and a half times as much as a gain feels good. And so if the market's down forty percent of the time daily, and it hurts two and a half times as much as the 60% feels good, it feels like it's down 90% of the time. So in a in a very real sense, if you're checking it daily, uh, it's going to feel like you're always losing money, even though that's not the case. All right, so don't check your portfolio every day or 15 times
0: a day. So emotions, we talked about emotions a little bit at the beginning, like being angry, being hungry, being hangry, thirsty, happy, sad. Like that can all influence our decisions. But the weird thing with... Emotions, though, it's like we so, there's been studies that showed you talk about this in the book that like we actually need emotions to make decisions. So how can you how can you make decisions while mitigating the downsides of emotions because
1: you need them, right? Yeah, you know the book is uh, some interesting research I cite in the book that you brought up talks about how people who had the emotional processing centers of their brain damaged they couldn't do. They couldn't decide which flavor of ice cream they wanted. They couldn't, you know, figure out which color suit they wanted to wear that day. They couldn't make even very sort of garden variety decisions because what the researchers found is that, you know, even the simplest decision has an emotional substrate. Even the the most common decision you make has an emotional underpinning to it that's important and, and guides our decisions. So there's no getting away from emotion entirely. But what's fascinating is they found that these people who couldn't pick out, you know, their favorite flavor of ice cream were actually great gamblers and great investors because they approached investing in gambling from a strictly mathematical place there was no emotion involved in their day-to-day decisions but there was likewise none involved in their in their investing decisions and they they beat people with normal brain function <laughs> so people with brain damage were better than than you or i at making financial decisions and so the the key to me is avoiding emotional extremes you know so there's a there's an acronym that i've stolen from the the 12 step program called halt and it stands for hungry angry lonely or tired and you know the the advice of people in aa or narcotics anonymous or uh, you know any of those 12 step groups is to avoid making an important life decision when you're hungry angry lonely or tired uh, and you know fill in your emotion of choice and you know i would say the same thing about investments if you're you know if you're fearful if you're greedy if you're excited like all of these are bad places to be like good investing is enormously boring, and so if you find yourself in one of these elevated mood states, it's not a good place to be in terms of doing anything with your money.
0: So it sounds like so we've talked about all the the the, the sociological, the physiological, the psychological things get in the way of us making good decisions, and we've talked about some solutions. And the solutions like they're very simple. Like this framework you've established, it's basic and it's stuff that we know, but it, now it's backed by science. Is diversify, automate don't check on it too frequently and don't make decisions when you're emotional.
1: Yeah, it's that that's what's fascinating about this is you know you write a 300-page book, you read a zillion articles and then at the end you go, "Okay, here's what you do. You automate because simple rules beat human discretion 94% of the time." You know, you get an advisor because you know, there's about ten percent of the world I think that can is is so disciplined that they can do these things on their own, and those people do exist. But most people need someone to hold their hand and keep them from making a handful of dumb decisions. You know, you manage your fees, you you try not to be overactive, and you have low turnover. You diversify. So yeah, the, in in some ways, the suggestions are re- remarkably unsexy. But again. The degree to which all of this is complicated in a weird way necessitates a simple approach. Well, you mentioned advisors and you and
0: I actually had a phone conversation a couple of weeks ago about this. And I asked you like, who's the type of person who should get an advisor? And you said like, it's, you, it's someone who probably needs help with like the behavioral aspect. It's not so much like what to invest in, like you know, having someone tell them what to, like, what to actually invest in, they might do that. But it's more like you need an advisor to make sure you stick to the plan and you do the thing you're supposed to do.
1: Yeah. So, you know, in the laws of wealth, chapter chapter two of the laws of wealth was, you know, was titled, you need a financial advisor, but not for the reason that you think. And so in that chapter, I make the case that the best, the highest and best use of a financial advisor is to effectively save you from yourself and the research shows that people who work with an advisor on average do 2 to 3% better per year than those who do not and that is a ton of money i mean so, you know 3% a year will double your you know double your wealth over over a long investment horizon and so it's it's tricky though because you know candidly some uh, some automated service like Betterment or you know another robo advisor would give you in many cases the very same suggestions as a financial advisor at a at a fraction of the cost. But you know the question you have to be really brutally honest with yourself about is 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 an automated service you know is reading a book on asset allocation going to keep me in my seat. When the, you know, and when the market is ripping my face off. And, and for most people, candidly, the answer is no. You know, there's, there's a really, really weak correlation between knowing the right thing to do and actually doing it. You know, I, I love to give the example of, of nutrition labels on food. You know, we started labeling all of our food about 28 years ago. And since that time, since this time when we've had perfect knowledge of calories and fat and sodium and sugar and, you know, every other thing on everything we put in our bodies, obesity's doubled, morbid obesity is tripled because knowledge is just a weak predictor of behavior. And so even if you know just how to invest, even if you have a sound asset allocation, your ability to stick with that allocation is far more predictive of whether or not you reach your goals than than you knowing what a good allocation is. That, that reminds me. I don't know if this is gonna going to go off in the deep end, but so I've, I've been rereading
0: Oedipus Rex, the the Greek tragedy, mm-hmm. and I thought it was interesting. Oedipus, like he knew that he was going to kill his father <laughs> and marry his mother. Like he knew that. That's why he left his hometown. But he still did it anyways because, like, he just got angry and like he killed the guy, an older guy. He shouldn't have been killing anybody, so like he did. It's so, like that's a great example of like, man, this stuff's been around for a long. You can still, you can know this
1: stuff, but you can still screw it up. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I saw something the other day on marital infidelity. It's something like forty percent of people cheat on their partners, and you know, if you ask those people, you know, hey, was that? was that consistent with your values you know was that the thing you wanted to do they would all tell you no i mean you know or, or nearly all of them and so it's it's just incredible how little education does i mean it's actually it's actually quite depressing when you when you start looking into financial literacy initiatives as you know as a guy who writes <laughs> books that try and educate people on how to how to manage their money and what to do with their wealth it's depressing so Really, I think education is necessary but not sufficient. And that, you know, the next thing you need to do is put in place structures, be they automated or be they an advisor, that are going to help keep you on the course. Education tells you which course to go on, but you need some sort of commitment device that keeps you on that course. And that's going to be a much better predictor. You want to be like o- Odysseus and tie yourself to the mast. Tie yourself to the mast, fill your ears with beeswax,
0: just like Odysseus. There we go. We got, I like how we got Greek here a little bit. <laughs> well, well, Daniel, where can people go to learn more about your work?
1: So a couple places. I have my own podcast called Standard Deviations. I'm active on Twitter at Daniel Crosby I'm on LinkedIn a lot, Daniel Crosby PhD, and you can find the books on Amazon. Well, Daniel Crosby, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. My guest today was Daniel
0: Crosby. He's the author of the book, The Behavioral Investor. It's available on amazon.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash behavioral investor, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles written over the years on personal finance, physical fitness, how to be a better husband, better father. And if you'd like to hear ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. To get a free month of Stitcher Premium, sign up at stitcherpremium.com and use promo code manliness. Once you sign up, just download the Stitcher app for iOS or Android and start enjoying the ad-free Art of Manliness experience. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Remind you not only to listen to the A1 podcast, but put what you've heard into action.